Not even. We're in California, man, and I'm not going to start complaining about coldness to anyone. Look how you're bundled up, man. You got like three layers, a hat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just do that. Oh, no, let's not. It is cold. Yeah. But it's a wet cold. That's funny. I have a wet cold. <laughs> Sounds like a bad date. <laughs> um, I saw this uh, cool little video clip. This guy talking about perspective. He's all, there's a friend of mine. He has sex three times a week, reads two books a day, you know, and he's still complaining about having to serve time in prison. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. I had sex three times a day once. I have sex three times a day whenever I want. It's just me, myself, and I. Isn't that like a a, a rap song? Yeah, me, myself, and I. It's a good rap song. 90s. Yep. Oh, damn it. My breakfast is sitting next to me. It's just like this heroin calling me. I have mine right here, too. Yeah, mine's really crunchy, though. It'll be too loud. Yeah, yours is soft. See, mine's. I see Greg eating a bagel with banana on it and maybe some other kind of spread. It's a little dark to see, but here we are. We're eating our breakfast on a podcast, which is <laughs> light years more palpable than Dave Chappelle is right now in the world. Yeah. Did you watch his last special? I've been, I watched it. Then I've been studying it because I've been watching my social media feed and I'm like, really? I'm shocked. There's one in particular that has just completely everyone missed to cap on him about it. What? The fact that he didn't smoke a single cigarette through the whole thing. Well, I wasn't going to say anything about that. I was actually thinking of something else, but, but you know, there's a lot of people giving him, who are criticizing the work, which has opened up a tremendous conversation, which points back to the value of the work, which is kind of an ironic thing. I know. That's what I think is brilliant. I think, I think um, one of the benefits the world has is Dave Chappelle is purely comfortable being Dave Chappelle. Like, I think he just knows who he is, and he's comfortable with that. 
It's easy to be comfortable when you have $50 million in the bank. Yeah, but, you know, look what he went through to get to where he is. That's true. It doesn't sound like it's been very comfortable. Plus, he's been in black skin the whole time. So that means a certain level of discomfort <laughs> that I can't possibly imagine. Yeah, that's funny. Um, oh, What's what funny about that, Greg? <laughs> black people are funny. <laughs> oh, there you go. Pull that quote out. Um uh, John Stewart, that's the name I was scratching for, has a new show on HBO, The Problem with John Stewart. And, yeah, I've seen episode one. All right. Episode two is kind of interesting. And there's this funny little bit where this woman's talking about oppression. Like, you know, he does the fake little com- fake little commercials. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the second episode, it's about freedom. And uh, people, you know, being oppressed for having to wear a mask. And I forget the woman's name, but she's very articulate and she's of color. She does this thing about, (laughs) listen, white people. Oh, you're oppressed. (laughs) You know, you're not oppressed. Fuck you. You know, like it's brilliant. It's really good. So it's interesting because when you move like it's that same argument, right? And then when you move it down the spectrum, to where Dave Chappelle is sitting there saying, LGBTQI people, you're not oppressed. It gets a lot more dicey for people. You did watch the whole thing, right? I'm on my third run through it. Okay. I watched the whole thing. Then I watched it again to listen. And now I'm on the third, like, kind of like, hmm. His closing line brought tears to my eyes. It was so beautiful. And I forget the young daughter's name, but I knew your father and he was a great woman. I was just like, whoa, still red tears to my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it, and so I love how riled up people are. (laughs) I love how, what that means about the art is that he has created this incredible impact in our society and opened up this huge dialogue. And I was telling Kathy yesterday, I was like, you know, imagine if he'd gone on like Twitter and social media and said, Hey everybody, I want you to have a really long and important discussion about the differences between black oppression and LGBTQI oppression. And it would have been crickets. (laughs) And he comes out with this hour long show and pretty much everybody that I know in America and on social media, which God, that just even that is kind of a silly thing to think about as if that's an important slice of humanity. But nonetheless, <laughs> my view of the public discourse through the lens of my white cis heteropatriarchal um, privilege is that now everybody's having that in, in conversation, except most people have divvied up their side of things and they're not having the conversation. I'm not having this conversation because he's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what he's talking about with punching down. You know, like he's talking about his good close friend, Kevin Hart, who dreamed about hosting the Oscars. You know, that's one of his bucket list items. It finally happens. And something that happened 10 years ago, which he apologized for. That's part of what he had issue with. He was like, I went through this. I apologized. I made my amends. And now you're dragging it back. Like, why are we doing this again? 
And then he finally to impress him because he's short. <laughs> and black. What? He's black? <laughs> Funny. <laughs> and, you know, it's. I, at first, it's funny too, because those two ladies, the two white ladies that are right kind of front and center in the audience, you know, they were laughing in the first few minutes and they weren't laughing. <laughs> Once he said, like, you know, he made that crack about Michigan. Um, oh boy, they were just like, um, there were some, you know, pieces that were hard for me. Yeah. And I was really grateful I just stuck with it. Because part of it was like I didn't think it was funny. I was like, you know, I I I'm loving what you're saying. Like I this there's there's some real depth and thought. But you weren't laughing. But yeah, it wasn't funny. Like in the other um shows. Shows it's hella funny and it's still got serious depth. But this was just a really serious thing. Now, here's the other thing I've noticed, because I heard um, one of the shows I love listening to in the morning is called The Get Up on Spotify. And the host is a gentleman of color. And he talked about seeing it and laughing, thought it was hella funny. And then on TikTok, I saw a woman of color sharing, you know, watching it and laughing. And I was like, I think there's an element of I'm not laughing because I'm not getting like I'm not in on the joke which was kind of cool for me like cool all right there's you sure it wasn't that sci-fi movie that he talked about making well that's a good point like (laughs) yeah that because that definitely was one of the hard hits but (laughs) you know what I was um, I did think though that is fucking funny (laughs) that hurts and that's a good joke. <laughs> and then the callback later was fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. So, but I th- thought it was a very beautiful swan song. And I think he's the kind of gentleman who's, you know, when he says he's checking out for a while, he really is checking out for a while. Well, we saw it once before. Why shouldn't we believe him now? Right. Yeah. I was curious about whether, um, because the other thing I was thinking about, are you still working with the two people out of L.A. and the training that they do to help Whitey? um, (laughs) Whitey get off the moon? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whitey's on the moon. I love that. The training you're talking about is something called the Heal Thyself course through the Remember Institute. And, um, yes, I'm a a member of the remember Institute and I'm what's called a saw, or, um, if you speak of it in terms of the the group sat S A T, because a woman who's a, is a saw and a saw. So they are sat and that's like basically protectors. So when a new student cohort enters into the space, the SOT's job is to have like, we typically have seven or so people that we help navigate the deep, deep intensity that goes with this course. And the course Heal Thyself um, is specifically designed for people who are racialized as white to confront the 
conditioning and the installed level of colonization in your mind around issues of race and privilege. So I was contemplating in the last 24 hours, um, seemed like the fear of fever. Oh, I know what it was. Cause though I pulled up to a stop when on the back of the sign, there were a lot of stickers and they had all been ripped off. And one of them you could see was a Black Lives Matter. And and I was kind of thinking, you know, it does seem like the fever of society of really engaging in the conversation and healing of racism had kind of gone down to a null, possibly. And I was wondering if that was um, a topic being discussed in the group that you're a part of. And I just forgot well, the name of the group. What's the I'm going to reframe it for you. Wait, what's the training group first? Uh, well, there's the Remember Institute. Remember Institute. The Heal Thyself course. Right, right. But the Remember Institute. So is that a conversation happening in the Remember Institute? Not particularly. I think the frame that I will give you is that both of us live in extremely white spaces. And so the perception yeah. that the conversation has gone down is directly related to the fact that we live in a privileged environment. And so white privileged environment. Okay. Are you going to sneeze? I thought I was. I thought you were too. Man, I wanted was, to. If you were a mime, that was a spot on imitation of someone ready to sneeze. Yeah, it was sneezes interrupticus. <laughs> um, but, um, so, yeah, the conversation never changes in that group because systemic uh, white supremacy has yet to be eliminated. Right. Well, here's what I also was wondering. Did the marker move? Marker. There's no marker. I guess you can see a wound and see if it's healed somewhat or not. Has the wound well, healed? Well, what, what I'll say, past? what I think you're speaking to is that in white spaces, the awareness of the necessity for white people to continue to do the work has gone way the heck down as a result of the events around the conviction of George Floyd's murderer. It's as if a kind of an event came to a head and then there was some modicum of justice that happened. And now it's as if it doesn't, the issue doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So like, for instance, with the remember Institute, I remember you tell me about a year ago, like these um, classes were packed with waiting list of people wanting to, is that still happening? Nope. Yeah, Whitey's like, oh, we're dead now. That yeah. was a nice march. Okay. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. We ended white oppression of black yeah. people. He got two years in prison. Yeah, 20, but nonetheless. Did he really? Yeah. And he lost his appeal. Oh, I guess there's, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And the, yeah, so. So would you like to take the course? Um, well, the easy answer is yes. Okay. Um, not sure I can get you in for free and I'm not sure you can afford even the discounted 50% friends rate. Right. But the fact so that, that you, let's have that conversation 
behind the curtains. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll let's talk about that offline. Right. And that's what I meant by the easy answer. Like, of course, if someone said, hey, here's a course. Great. I'm in. So the new um, round of it starts uh, October 27th, which I'm guessing this episode will have aired uh, several weeks later than that. And so those of you who are out there who are hearing this conversation and are curious about healing your own sense of um, colonized white identity or what we refer to as, um, <clears throat> oh, now it's escaping me. I said it at the top line. Anyway, the course will continue in 2022 and beyond and will continue to be offered. Rememberinstitute.com is a place to go and find the course Heal Thyself. But there's a whole lot more there. Like the woman who built this has built a whole section of studies for not just people who are racialized as white, but for all kinds of people who want to just create the reality of oneness in the world. Do you know if she ultimately believes race doesn't exist? It's a, it's a, it's a, a construct that was created not based on any science or reality. Okay, there's two. Those things are mutually exclusive. In 1641, slave owners in the south of what was not yet the United States at that time invented the concept of color and race in order to create a hierarchical structure whereby they could leverage the labor of people who were labeled as white as if they were superior, but they were still lower on the economic scale than the the owners. And that privilege became the basis for policing of others. And so the idea was that if we if we give people a a scale of, well, if if that person's black and, and you're white, then you're superior then you can we can leverage your desire to maintain your superiority and and then we don't have to in, do it as much so the that's the the idea there so in a sense race n- never existed and i don't really want to speak for uh the person who runs the remember institute per se but i will speak from what i've learned from them which is that when you do the deep dive on the genetic code, we're all from the same basic areas, ultimately. Now, our indigenous cultural origins have geographic locations, but when you go beyond that in time and you look at just the record of genetics, you find that we are all basically very close to each other. It's not... Like we're that different and the, the melanin content seems to be the main difference that people relate to. Right. Which is ridiculous. That's what right. there's a friend, uh, Dr. September Williams, and she's her, her area of academics is bioethics. And we had I've had a few great conversations with her. And one of them was that. Exactly that aspect of melatonin as a, as race, where all people of any color know that the melatonin content and the skin tones 
are there's a huge spectrum, regardless of any heritage or nest area of origin. Well, the the issue is not skin color. It is how we are conditioned through trauma and the impact of our, the contexts that we are given generation upon generation upon generation. And therefore the, the possessiveness of the, you know, what we call it is clutching our pearls as white people. It's like, Oh my God, I don't want to lose my privilege. I don't want to become right. And, and that has so many implications. Like you can look at the most recent U S census and you see that people who are racialized as white are not growing. The numbers are not growing and everybody else is growing. And what that tells people who are concerned about power, about supremacy is that their days are numbered. <laughs> that just reminded me of the um, um, oh come on fear of a black planet um, the rap group oh you know oh, oh I'm so sad come on oh, I gotta look this up um, anyway fight the power um, what's their name shoot I don't know I don't know I'm getting old public enemy oh yeah public enemy so they have this killer song that's you know White baby, white mama, white daddy, white baby, black baby, black mama, black daddy, black baby, black mama, white daddy, black baby. And they just go through, you know, like, and you pretty much realize that yeah, the, the white race, like there's the odds are white is disappearing. And what's really peaceful about their element is like one day it's like the smeeches. One day we're just going to be it really the color of one's skin isn't going to have any matter to importance. Well, the conditioning that arises out of the socioeconomic system and the people who tend to hold the reins of power in that, they will continue to find ways to divide us. And you can see that in your social media now where people are divided against each other in new ways, new and different ways than we've ever experienced before. And what is that all about? That's all about keeping us arguing about fucking crumbs instead of really changing the, the, the way the whole thing works. In, wasn't it in Chappelle's thing where he had a comment about that and now it's the vaccinated and unvaccinated? Uh, I don't remember that being the focus. It wasn't in that? Okay. But it, the, it, it, the idea is that there's this group of people who have been able to maintain a kind of overt power over that are repressing the the whole of human endeavor. And you can see it in things like in 1914, there were electric cars. And in 1978, there was an internal report done by, I think it was Chevron or maybe it was Exxon indicating they knew that the carbon emissions from internal combustion engines were affecting the atmosphere in a really super negative way. But what they were 78. And so they repressed that report. They'd done the scientific research and they repressed that report. And then you look to 2001 
Well, you could even go sooner than that. When George Bush, Bush the first invaded Kuwait to protect the oil supplies, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we've known for over 100 years, it's 2021, 1914, we had electric cars. We had the water car. There's a, a whole movie about the water car where you can run a car off water. Right, right. And the thing about those solutions is they don't center people at the profit level. And this is the big issue. What human endeavor is amazingly creative. We are creating miracles every day, but there's this governing force, i.e. limiting vision that wants to extract as much monetary control and therefore personal wealth and control over that so that it doesn't favor the masses. And there's just this reality there that's you can see it in every institution of what I'll call um, predatory capitalism. But do you think that it's overtly conscious in an individual that an individual is sitting down and thinking, how do I keep the masses in a position of inequity and just suck them dry. So no, that, that doesn't, that's not how it works. It's way more insidious than that. What, what it is, is that person who's in the seat of power experiences a fear of loss. That's irrational. And they therefore want to preserve their position out of a justification for, Oh, I'm, I'm wealthy. I want to preserve my wealth. I owe it to my shareholders. I owe it to my family. I owe it to my community because if I lose this, then all of that disappears. And what they miss in that calculation is that if they, if they were able to shift the viewpoint, then the abundance could transfer to a lot more people. Right. And that what they lose then is the power over. And this is the basic problem. Now they don't look at it as I'll lose power over everyone. They just look, look at it as I will lose my safety, right? It's an internalized subconscious programming that's been handed down over and over again and is reinforced by things like, you know, shareholder value. And, you know, this family's been the wealthy family of this district for over five generations. And if you don't uphold that, you're failing your father. Like it's a whole other thing that they're thinking. It's not that what you're talking about. It's not overtly consciously choosing evil, except in the most extreme, extreme cases of psychopaths. Usually, right. And usually is someone in power. That's a dictator. Well, even then, I think they're more sociopaths than psychopaths necessarily, but I think it depends on the dictator. Well, let's look at Idi Amin. Do you think that'd be a sociopath or a psychopath? I honestly don't know enough to be be absolutely clear. But Adolf Hitler. From what I've heard, he sounds sociopathic to me. So someone who was more interested in retaining like this God figurehead as a leader of a country. And when he says, wipe out those... 10,000 people, it wasn't like kill psychopath. It was like, I'm doing this to eliminate enemies and I'm in power. Right. 
Let's go bring it closer to home. Eisenhower oh, dropped the bomb, dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. Yes, he did. There was no reason to do it. Well, that's not what I was taught, Mark. I know. I was taught that he killed millions to save the lives of multi-millions. Yeah. And to stop a war that was just going to go on and on and on for decades. No, they were already ready to surrender, according to um, historical documentation. That's not the historical documentation I have in my textbook. I wonder who owns those companies that prepared those textbooks. Are they printed by one company in Texas? Perhaps they are. Really? (laughs) Is that real? Yeah. There's one company in Texas that prints 90% of the U.S. school textbooks. Man, that is beautiful. Give me a T for Texas. Right. Oh, that explains a lot. (laughs) I don't think this... uh, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma situation needs to be in the book, really? They're already saying no to it. You really? can't teach it in Tulsa. It's illegal to teach it in Tulsa. Really? Yep. That is madness. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the uh, BIPOC experience. White. Whitey. Um, uh, the, yeah. I was talking with to well, a bunch of friends Saturday. Um, real quickly, one of the things I learned recently about like Germany and U.S. is Germany, from what I read, has very overtly acknowledged the Holocaust. It's taught at an early age. It's out in the open. They discuss it. It's there. And the U.S. has yet to do that in regards to slavery. Well, yeah. Um, Let's go back to the call it critical race theory is what the current vernacular is. And there's like a whole bunch of people who think it's the wrong thing to teach in school. Critical race theory doesn't represent the proper framework for how we should teach blah, 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 blah. All right. Let's go to uh, the nukes. You didn't really finish that train of thought. Psychopath, psychopath, sociopath. Eisenhower dropped the nuclear bombs on Japan. Well, he dropped him because he wanted to send a message to Russia. And that's a so sociopath move. I'm going to say sociopath. And just keep in mind, folks, I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> you probably don't know what I'm fucking talking about. But what? then, then we go, well, then who is a psychopath? Right? Right. Jeffrey that's, Dahmer. Yeah, but here's the thing. He had logic in his mind. For justifying what he was doing. Charles Manson had logic in his mind for justifying what he was doing. Um, The United States hired and brought Nazi scientists over to America to help with the race for the nuclear bomb. Well, The difference, I think, if I understand this correctly, between sociopathy and psychopathy is that the psychopath actually enjoys the murder. The pain. It's a pleasure for them. They're deriving pleasure from it. And, you know, as much as I don't um, appreciate that what it was that had Eisenhower decide to drop the bomb, I don't think he enjoyed it. Right. 
I'd like to think he didn't enjoy it. I'd like to think he did. I'd like to think it caused him pain for the rest of his life. No, fact, well, I don't wish that either. That right. was an interesting thing, a discussion I had Saturday with these friends. One of the, this gentleman is bright as fuck. Like, I like to really think that I'm a bright motherfucker. This guy puts me to shame, man. Anyway, um, he was talking about how society, like we like to give people a second chance, but part of that is an acknowledgement from the individual that they did wrong in order for that second chance to come for forgiveness and everything to come. That person needs to say, I made a mistake and I want to do right. And we were talking about John Gruden just stepping down and um, kind of wondering what's next for him. But what uh, my friend was saying is, well, at least he's got a good start because he said he started to try to, you know, make excuses and stuff. And then his final statement was, there is no situation in which what I did was right. So he still hasn't made the full journey in that statement. Well, that's so here's how it works in order for. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's a formula here. I'm going to okay. argue this. What? You're going to argue gonna with argue me about this? this? You don't even know what I'm going to say, and you're going to argue with me about yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Argue. Okay. I take the fifth. That's not an argument. <laughs> That's contradiction. <laughs> All right. Let me hear why John Gruden said that there is no situation in which what I did is right. Yes. Because it's still centered on him on whether he's right or wrong. And right or wrong isn't the point. The point is, what is the impact of what he's done? And until he actually can list the things he did and the direct impacts that he's had and then take responsibility for those. But this is part of my point. Is there those emails are 10 years old. I'm not saying that makes them right or wrong. What I'm saying is from that 10-year span to now, there is footage of him on the football field going and greeting a player who was openly gay and greeting him like, all right, you know what, you're here, let's play ball. I'm not saying that means like he was totally open and good, but I am saying that Part of what I think Dave Chappelle's point was is this black and white, right or wrong, like you did that 10 years ago. You're fucked. You are dark and you and you lose everything. End game. No, like that's let's take it all in. And yeah, he he definitely made a mistake. Well, OK. Mistakes, right or wrong. Again, it's. When your apology and your 30 second soundbite is I, there's nothing right about it. That's great. But much better would be to do like an interview with depth where he goes line by line and he says, I did this and this is the impact to that person. This is what happened in their life. This is the thing that I perpetuate 
by saying that. And so when you do it at that level of depth, that's reestablishing awareness. But when we break it down to just right or wrong, it's, it's like, it's like we're not penetrating the surface of it. We're just, again, it's a binary. Part of the conversation was talking about, let's see what happens next. And um, my friend, instead of referring to him as my friend continually, I'm going to say DF. So DF, he brought up Tim Hardaway as another example who um, apparently like grew up, you know, where you said derogatory term for a gay person or homosexual person. That was just how one spoke. And he was super slanderous in this area, got called out. And now today is continually interacting with the gay community and going to events and speaking. And now he's a beloved individual by the community because he has acted. Appropriation is the word that comes to mind. But, you know, in other words, his actions over a period of time, including today, are such that now he's an ally to a community that he didn't mean to, but did put down and hurt. So I think what we're talking about now is the concept of reparations and what's the path to reparations. Does that feel right to you? That feels right. Yeah. So that's a great question. And it's not something we can answer in five minutes on this call because it's such a vast concept. What is reparations? Well, in order to find out, you got to start with what was the impact, like I've been saying, because you can't repair something you don't actually acknowledge the impact of. Right. And some things you just plain can't repair. Right. Like we can't repair the dead Japanese people that died in that atomic bomb. They're gone. They, their families, the impact of that will be is still felt for generations. Right. right. So there's this thing about forgiveness. What's forgiveness for? We've been here before. Right. <laughs> and um, what's what are reparations for? Are they to relieve the guilt and the sense of wrongness of the white person that's doing that did it or the person that doesn't have to be white? I mean, reparations can be beyond color, but it's not it's not for them. Because otherwise it's just more ego. It's right. It's not reparations. Right. right? Yeah. What I think is the most solid example from humanity in our lifetime is the truth and reconciliation things that went down in South Africa. Yes. Right. And I think those were eight years, like apartheid ended and Mandela was, was instated and it took eight years to go through and create a historical legacy where every person they could find that was still alive and was brought in front of the tribunal and, and made to testify to the things that they did that contributed to it. And that that's now part of the public record and it can be taught Right. But there's still Afrikaners in South Africa who are racist assholes. Yeah. And the government has definitely slipped from what it was when Mandela and Tutu and others were first empowered. What's the fundamental reason that that slippage has occurred? It's economic. Yeah. That's why we have to go to the root of why people were called white 
is to remain, to continue to perpetuate economic dominance of a small class of people. And, you know, people have said it would, I don't know what the number is. I think it's like, it would take $5 trillion to end world hunger or something like that. Hmm. It's not that much money when you consider, you know, what's available as far as the resources go. So it's not that the earth doesn't have enough resources or that if we use them to do this thing where everyone gets By the a, way, that was a beautiful embodiment of the earth. That you it's not that that is that, that, that somehow if we do that, it's going to destroy life because you can't possibly make it so that everyone lives in an abundant state. It's that there's a pattern that's embedded in the economic system, which goes all the way back to Eurocentric colonialist capitalist society, Adam Smith, that is the linchpin to all the toxicity, the pollution, the prevention of the innovation of resources that don't fuck up the planet, the redistribution of materials so that such that there's an abundance for everybody as opposed to an elite who suck all the wealth off the top. What I think about is like the step of removing economics completely from life and a utopian society. And the challenge I see to that is that we're experiencing it now. One's idea of utopia isn't fitting with another's idea of utopia, and there's a clash. And where we see that is with masks and vaccinations right now where a lot of people feel like their freedom is reliant on everyone getting vaccinated and wearing masks. So this thing goes away. And other people are feeling their freedom relies on them having the choice of whether they do that or not. And there is a big clash happening in our country regarding that. So you've that was very reductionist. And you've confined the idea of having a new global economic system to the mask debate. No, I'm saying I'm talking about a utopian society. Well, the and, book uh, utopia, and the conflict being that one person's idea of what utopia is doesn't fit another. Like for me, when I picture utopia, I picture a lot of cleanliness and green and happy and joy. Saturday night, I just saw these kids shut down a major intersection in Sacramento and just doing donuts and crazy madness and, you know, souped up cars like Stingrays, BMWs. It was crazy. It was awesome. Does that fit in my utopian society? It doesn't. And so like, oh, wait, where does that youthful exuberance. So here's the thing. Both of those polarities that you've described are the result of a framework that's of your colonized mind that only can think of the, that's the level of parameter that somehow those things are mutually exclusive, that you can't have both. And that's exactly what I'm trying to address is that that kind of intense sort of mental slavery that's been indoctrinated in us generation after generation, going all the way back to the inception of the Catholic Church and beyond, 
has to be dismantled. And then once you dismantle that and you, you recognize the true potential of the miraculous capacity for human endeavor, you realize there's room for all of the things of youthful expression and youthful rebellion and, you know, cleanliness as well as dirt. You know, we need dirt. Got to have enough dirt in our diet to make sure that the gut biome works. I mean, it's, there's nothing in the creation that is necessarily wrong or out of place. But when individual egos amass control matrices over others and centralize and embed their consciousness in this paradigm that we're existing in, it becomes illness. And that's where we're at. Illness. So I cannot picture a utopian society. You're right. I'm stuck. Great. So right away, just stop using that word. That's a book. Utopian. Utopia was a book. And it's pointed at by people that say, we can't do that. And it's now it's another mental prison. So just banish the word utopia from use because it's pointing at a book that was written precisely to create this problem in our thinking. So which word came first, utopia or dystopian? You can't have one without the other. Well, they came at the same time. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the entomology, but they're, they're polarities of each other. You're missing my point. Right. As long as the framework is either a utopia or it's not, or it's my utopia and what, what their utopia is incompatible. You're still missing the point. And the colonization of your thinking is still present. And that's the thing. If we recognize the capacity for human grace and human beauty and the world that we live in, it, we realize that we don't have to live under the yoke of this old system, that it's not necessarily beneficial. And that when we unleash the power of true teaching in the sciences, true teaching in the math, true teaching and innovation, when we actually take the idea of free enterprise, which isn't capitalism, Free enterprise says, what if someone comes up with an imaginative thing that never existed before and wants to bring it into existence in a massive way where we can scale it across the whole world? That's something we should continue to preserve. But when we anchor that to this idea of profit, of money and banks and the structure of like the original thing for corporate charters in the United States was you couldn't have a corporation longer than five years. You were only allowed to be a corporation for five years. And after that, you couldn't be a corporation anymore because that way it was only designed to provide the seed money, the concentration of energy so that you could move through to the scaling process and complete it and then dissipate all of that extra concentration of wealth across the whole spectrum of social of the socials commons. So people decided like, oh, I don't want to give up my money. I don't want to give up these shares that can continue to make me wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. Right. Um, and then we have people like uh, Carnegie. And he said, all right, I'm going to take like huge chunks of my money and I'm going to build all these libraries and we're going to put books in them, even books I disagree with. Right. But the same guy, Carnegie, wanted to form the, the Medical Association, the AMA, American Association, Medical Association. And what he did was he said, I'll, buy, I'll pay for all of these schools to be built 
and medical schools, but you got to take homeopathy out of the schools or I won't fund them. So this, what we'll call goddess based healing power was circumvented from developing in science. It was literally pulled out. Why? Because they wanted to be able to patent the chemicals that were built so that they could make profit off of the way medical science evolved, not just have the most health for people. And so all of the science that could have gone into homeopathy for the last hundred years and all of the remedies that could have been free of expense, and then all of the knowledge that could have gone into what the natural world provides us gets circumvented because there's this narrow profit motive and the the schools all like failure of imagination. Sure. Yeah. We want a medical school. You're going to give us $5 million. Yeah. We'll tell this person to get lost because we want that $5 million. Right. It's like this whole miss opportunity. And apparently I'm very passionate about this. (laughs) So what do you recommend for an individual? Like when I come up against the disease in myself, confronted with something that doesn't jibe with my reality. You know, like I'm thinking of, so I have this idea of utopia and someone says, well, that's not it. And now I'm challenged. Those feelings of disease that come with challenge, my reality being challenged. Well, it's actually your imagination that's being challenged, not your reality. Well, it's my reality in the moment because I, I I can't imagine anything else. Like, oh, well, that's an interest. So you just opened up the Pandora's box of reality and imagination. That, and well, I let's take you took that polarity. Right? There's you and your vision, and there's this other person that says that vision won't work for me. Right. Right. So the the conclusion in that equation is immediately the question is framed in a zero-sum game. It's win or lose. Either he wins or I win. Or it's either he gets what he wants and I don't get what I want or he, right? But but that's not reality. You know what's interesting is in the John Stewart thing about freedom, one of the things he says is that for democracy to work, you have to be willing to lose. And we've lost that. No one's willing to lose anymore. Case in point, our ex-president. Well, again, it's... As long as the framework for which we are interpreting things is based on I win or I lose, we're already no longer on the spot. We're no longer in the game where we've stopped playing the game of beauty. But part of what I'm saying in beauty is there could be a completely joyful experience in a coin flip where you flip a coin and I call heads or tails and I'm going to be right or wrong. I'm going to win or lose. And it doesn't matter. It can be a benign statement. The charge if I win or I lose is a charge we've created. And because we created it, we can decreate it, for lack of a better word, so that it's just like, oh, I lost. All right. Moving on. 
if I see the humanity in the person who is on the other side of the issue for me, and I see the humanity in the group of people that are on the other side of the um, issue from me, and they see the humanity in me, and there's a decision to be made that requires a vote, and the vote goes a certain way, I don't have to decide that I've been dehumanized and that I have to fear them. Now, one of the things that's sort of problematic about this example is that we're in a context where you can make rules that have people be incarcerated. And people can get incarcerated for things that would be considered things that they sh- they are are god-given liberties. So for instance, the cannabis plant exists. And for many generations in Texas, if you had a relationship with God's creation where you took the cannabis plant home with you and smoked it so that you could feel a sense of connection to, you know, heaven on earth, the Texas authorities claimed the right to put you in jail for 20 years. I think that's still relevant for opium and right. mushrooms. Right. Now, the attempt there is to try to have societies where we can all feel a sense of well-being. And that the fear that drove that was that somehow if people were using cannabis, it would put other people's children at risk or other people's livelihoods at risk. And so there's this whole fear matrix that's built up around the idea of what law is and the authority of the central government to put people in jail in order to protect each other from our fears. And we've tried really hard to develop a system that does its best to work that problem because we don't want psychopaths and sociopaths running around doing things that impact each other. So if sociopaths don't have the ability to get that, the fact that they're going to drive their car drunk and, and kill people is it necessitates action by the collective because the individual isn't capable, right? So that's the basis where we justify what laws are. So now we're into this thing, well, if these people win, then they get to make the laws. They get to make the rules, right? So now we're into this whole quagmire of what this whole system is built on. Now, if you just take the idea of jurisprudence for a second and set it aside as an item itself, this idea of legislatures, laws, police, and um, judges, right? There's some elements to this that used to be functional, right? And they've begun to decay and become less functional because of certain problematic limitations around what it takes to adjudicate. What is a jury of our peers? What, a, what, who, you know, what's a fair trial? <laughs> who gets to decide who the judges are, right? What's an appeal? Like there's all these layers to it. And, and over time, the amount of human beings that are available to engage in that process get narrower and narrower and narrower. We have less and less and less access to courts over time. 
fewer and fewer judges that are young and evolving with the, the social commons. We get these judges that are appointed for life, right? And the theory is that as they grow older, they get more wisdom and therefore they'll be more likely to produce the thing where that great story we tell about the woman whose babies, right, right. you know, and then the one says, oh, well, I'll just cut it in half and give one to each of you. And the right. one woman says, no, no, she can have it. Right. Right. And the other woman's but, like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the th- thing is, we don't actually get that from judges. We get judges who are beholden to the ideological things that they commit themselves to and their conditioning and replacing them is troublesome, right? So we're not going to solve this whole quagmire all right now. We've gone down this huge rabbit hole and anybody who's still listening, please write us, (laughs) please write us and tell us what you thought. What's the address? The hosts at mopedoutlaws.com. Because we care about what you think. And caring about what other people think is the first step in developing the connection necessary to have the dialogue that can heal the planet. And we have to, we have to approach this with more generosity, less fear. Earlier when you were talking about recognizing the humanity of another and I thought, well, how does that happen? It comes from communication. And that's, I think, our knee-jerk response in life is I don't have time to communicate with everyone. And the reason that is, is because we're all being kept on this freaking treadmill of economic development, right? We don't have time to be human to each other because we're too busy competing for money that we're borrowing from someone else. Who's like creating this whole illusion that we have to compete and that we don't have time. And in fact, there's zero time. Remember, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Right. Exactly. I like that plug you just gave me. Didn't go by me. I got it. Um, about 40 minutes ago, I really was hoping to be funnier. Uh, <laughs> but I, I kind of knew that the moment I brought Dave Chappelle into this, that the funny would might leak out. I told you it wasn't a funny, you know, show. <laughs> right. And uh, um, what I want to say is that one of the things that keeps me going every week is the possibility of sitting down with you and having these thoughtful conversations that I have nowhere there where they're going to go, nowhere where they're going to end up. And the reflection of myself, the things that I can learn for myself are like the rich gold of my life. And I'm super grateful to you and to our audience. And, um, you know, we can do better. Yes. Recording stopped.